If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, tomorrow is President's Day. I wanted to take the opportunity to discuss how important it is that we take the opportunity to recall the founding of our country and what it means to be an American citizen. I really believe that you cannot teach American history without talking about George Washington, the founders, and the events of 1776 and the Revolutionary Period. The United States wouldn't be what it is today without the Federalist Papers, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. My guest today has a new book out about our uniquely American founding, entitled Land of Hope, an Invitation to the Great American Story. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Wilfred McClay. He is the GT and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma and the Director of the Center for the History of Liberty. My guest is Wilfred McClay, somebody who believes passionately in America. Bill McClay has written numerous books, including his latest, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Now, thank you for joining me. President's Day is tomorrow, and I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to have you on to discuss your new book, Land of Hope. And I'm curious, as you know, I'm also a historian by background. I know that. Actually, I want to share with you, we have a connection that you wouldn't necessarily know about, is that I taught 
at Tulane for wow. the first 12 years of my academic career and was in the same department where you received your PhD, the history department. So we have that connection. Tulane's a great institution. But I'm curious, as a fellow historian, what got you interested in history? Oh, that's a really interesting question because I wasn't at the outset, and I actually think it's rather rare that very young people are drawn to history, except maybe through things like the Civil War. And actually, I think the first glimmer of historical consciousness in me came when I was a boy. I grew up mainly in Maryland, but my maternal grandmother lived in Charleston, Illinois. And we would visit her every summer. And one day I was out wandering around the fairgrounds, saw a sign to the effect that one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates had been held there. And at that time, there was almost nothing but this sign to commemorate it. We Americans are very funny about commemorating our history. Sometimes it takes us a long time to get around to it. But that just transfixed me, the idea that on this spot, this epochal event had taken place. And so I was sort of transported and kind of wandering around and thinking about Lincoln and Douglas and on a stage debating and I think that was a moment where I awakened to the lure of the past and the reality of the past and the imminence of the past. But there's a much more clear line of delineation. It was when I was in college. What happened is one of my college friends, a fellow named Andy Reid, invited me to come up and spend the 4th of July with his family on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So while I was there, his uncle Henry wandered over. Well, Uncle Henry, to any of your listeners, was Henry Hope Reed, one of the great architectural historians and a classicist, an advocate for the revival of the classical style. And Uncle Henry knew every inch of New York City, including Lower Manhattan. And so he took us on a tour on the 4th of July of Lower Manhattan. And Every building, every plaza, every street, he had stories to tell about them, which were obviously present to him in a way that absolutely transfixed me. I'd never met anyone like this. So Uncle Henry had two effects on me. He made me take conservatism seriously as a disposition that respected the past and sought to preserve the past, at least what was best in the past. But he also made me more historically minded. I suddenly developed a keen interest in history, both of material culture, of the built environment, but also of maybe more than anything, the American mind. That suddenly became very important to me to explore what made this country tick, what's made us so special. So I ended up going to graduate school at Johns Hopkins in American intellectual history. And so that's how it all happened in a very rough compass. So when you're looking at American intellectual history, were you primarily 20th century or what period did you focus on? Well, I worked with Kenneth Lynn, who was primarily a literary biographer. He did biographies of Hemingway and William Dean Howells and Mark Twain and so on. He did a great biography of Charlie Chaplin. It was his last book. He was actually a longtime colleague of Perry Miller, who was the great historian of the Puritans. 
And so a part of my task was to read and master all the works of Perry Miller and everybody sort of surrounding that. So I actually spent a lot of time working on Puritanism and early American ideas, both religious and secular. So I think in the end, my studies were pretty far-ranging. From that background and that perspective, did you come up with this whole notion of it's kind of an optimistic interpretation of the American experience. I think I've actually come to that more gradually in recognition of the things that are special. Some people like the word exceptional about us. After I graduated from college, I spent almost three years working at the U.S. Naval Institute, a job for which I had no competency whatsoever. I'd never served in the Navy. I'd grown up around Annapolis. That was about it. But I walked in the door at the right moment looking for a job, and they hired me, and I ended up becoming their naval history editor. And it got me interested in history and in historical research and in that whole process. This was during the 70s, and it was sort of post-Vietnam kind of hangover. I had sort of typical Vietnam-era attitudes. And then I started working with these naval officers and with the Navy, and I was very impressed. And I still have an extremely favorable, warm view of the Navy from that experience. I mean, it was changing me politically, but it was also making me more and more interested in history. Military people tend to be interested in history. It's not that surprising, really, when you think about it. It was Napoleon, I think, who said that you should always study military history. Yes. You know, I didn't follow the current fashion of leaving military history out of uh, Land of Hope. It's not predominant, but it's there, and it has to be, to give the whole picture of the degree to which struggles for power between nations uh, you know, rule the world. They don't rule it exclusively or sovereignly, but they're a big part of explaining what happens. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Given everything that's been going on, to write a book called Land of Hope is almost to go right in the teeth of all of the current fads, the whole woke movement. It's a courageous decision. What led you to decide to do that? Well, a couple of things. Most of what I wrote, I wrote for specialized audiences and all of that. And every now and then I would write for a general interest publication, commentary or the American scholar or something like that. And often I wrote about how deplorable the state of history was because we were so fragmented and historians didn't write for actual readers. They just wrote for one another and all the complaints that many others have leveled. And at a certain point, I began to feel, you know, I'm not accomplishing anything with this moaning and groaning that at some point I should try to do something better. If I end up falling on my sword, at least I can, can sort of suggest a direction that others could go into to reintegrate history, to mend it, to make it into the resource for national cohesion and towards a fullness of life that it really is meant to be. So there was always that in the background. And then the college board, the people who administered all the advanced placement tests, came out with a revision of the U.S. history standards, and they were really radical. They eliminated mention of George Washington and James Madison, if you can believe that. They greatly de-emphasized the Constitution, the debates about the Constitution, the various sources of historical background for the Constitution, the rationale for it, 
this was radically de-emphasized in favor of more or less economic explanations of American development. Lots of emphasis on the slave trade and its role. Let me just ask you for a second. How do you describe the emergence of America without Washington? Beats me. Maybe one point to make here is that I decided going into this that one of the things I had to do was to make this primarily a political history because the political history of a nation is really its backbone. My field was intellectual history, but I really felt that the history of the formation of our institutions had to be front and center because what I wanted the book to be was a preparation for citizenship. It's really for high school students, although it's found a lot of other readers somewhat to my surprise. But it's basically to give a historical foundation to the proper ideas about what it means to be an American citizen. Obviously, how do you leave George Washington out of that? How do you leave great political leaders? How do you leave the whole question of statesmanship, of what statesmanship is, the peculiar kind of wisdom, prudential and situational wisdom that is the property of a statesman. The best way to teach those things is by the way Plutarch did, through examples. And Washington, there's no better example of a kind of extraordinary. I mean, we are so blessed to have had him as the father of our country, as we say. It's not clear to me that we would have survived without him. Getting back to your question about what made me write this book is the College Board actually did roll back a lot of their innovations. But in the meantime, the big-time publishers, and there are really only three of them, publishers of textbooks, had already revised their textbooks in light of what they anticipated to be the new version of the AP exam. Some people started coming to me and saying, you know, we really got to develop an alternative textbook. And my answer was always the same. I, I agree with you. I hope you find somebody. <laughs> because I wasn't about to volunteer for doing it. Writing a textbook doesn't get you anywhere in the professional academic world. And a lot of times it doesn't get you even make you any money. It just sits there. So I wasn't especially inclined to do it. Plus, as you said, it sets you up for being attacked by everybody. That actually hasn't happened to me. I've been attacked a respectable amount, but not a great deal. You want to be attacked at least enough that they know you're alive. Yes, right, right, right. You want to have that flack that lets you know you're near the target. And I have had that. Now, it, I noticed it, that you also produced a teacher's guide. Yes, and there's also a student workbook that's based on the student guide, which is in press, as they say. So that'll be available in a month or two. I mean, so you're offering a, a full-purpose sort of package. What's the reaction been among teachers? Well, as it happens, there's a county in South Florida, public school system in South Florida, Martin County, I believe it is, that is adopting the book, and they asked me if I would speak to via Zoom with a group of their teachers. And that's what I did. And it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And they asked good questions, often probing questions, but I don't think they'd ever heard anybody talk about history in the way that I did and the way I tried to in the book. And it's essential to the right kind of patriotism to have a knowledge 
of the American past and a sense of one's connection to it. We don't have a whole lot of public school systems jumping on board yet, but I'm really committed to doing what I can to promote the book and try to promote the use of it. The reaction we've gotten so far has been good. I'll tell you a counterexample, which is more indicative of what we're facing. I, I was invited to Scarsdale, New York, in Westchester County, to speak there at the City Hall about the book. And my host invited the superintendent of schools and the head of social studies for the county and all these fairly high-ranking people in the public school establishment. They have very good public schools in Scarsdale, as you can imagine. They all found a reason not to come. There was a whole collection of African-American young people with their teachers from a parochial school in Yonkers, I think, who were there. But public schools, they didn't have time for me. And I expect to get a lot of that, particularly in blue states. I think there's a kind of lock-in of the whole establishment, including the books that are assigned. And it's going to take a while. And in some places, we may never be able to get a hearing. And people like homeschoolers? Oh, yeah. Responsive? They have been very responsive. And I know that world a bit because my wife and I homeschooled our two kids. And I was able to actually kind of draw on some names of people who I'd read, sort of advising how to order your child's curriculum, that sort of thing, to promote the book. So yeah, I have a lot of homeschoolers who are very much drawn to the book and to our approach. But I have to say, you know, and I think you'd agree with me about this. So the book is fairly even-handed. This is not a uncritical study. The endorsement that I'm proudest of is from Gordon Wood, who is arguably the most important living historian of the United States. And Wood says uh, this is a generous but not uncritical story of our nation's history. It ought to be read by every American, explains and justifies the right kind of patriotism. And that's exactly what I set out to do. It's really for everybody. I have not gotten a lot of flack from people who've actually read the book about it being biased or polemical. I am opinionated, and I do ride a few hobby horses, such as I try to give Calvin Coolidge his due, which I think almost none of the existing textbooks do. They rely on cliches from the Arthur Schlesinger era of historiography. But for the most part, I try to be fair. I try to be fair to FDR. I try to be fair to many of the most more controversial figures. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To what extent do you think we're still the land of hope? Oh, look, I do think we are for several reasons. The obvious one is people are still lining up at the border, even as we speak, to come into this country. They're not doing it because they want to have the experience of living in the most racist and most oppressive regime in human history, which is what you would think if you paid attention to what the pundits on the left say and, and much of the historical profession says. So it's an obvious way in which we are a magnet to much of, if not all, the world still as much as ever. So there's that sort of obvious point. But the title, Land of Hope, has several valences to it. And one of the things I really meant to convey in it is that we are 
I think, unique among the nations of the world as a characteristic of our national life or our national disposition, national character, whatever you want to say. This sense that no one should be compelled to live out their lives within the confines of the conditions of their birth. That upward mobility is the rightful aspiration of every American. And that the idea that people should be condemned to the conditions, the economic and social conditions of their and cultural conditions of their birth is anathema to almost everybody. Very few Americans think otherwise about that. This is not true <laughs> around the world. This sense that, and hope, I think, is the way of describing that aspirational quality to our national outlook. We are a hopeful people. And hope, of course, can be theological, it can be secular, it can be strictly material. All of those things operate in our history. I think that someone asked you to give a brief description of America, if you stuck only to material or visible or tangible things, or even the history of institutions, you wouldn't have captured America at all if you left out this aspirational side to us, which is very real and is a spiritual quality and not one that strictly is deducible from our many material blessings, which are, you know, indisputable, but there's this spiritual quality and it's a restlessness at times. It's susceptible of being disappointed. I think some of the most dramatically disillusioned people who rail against America actually do that because their hopes were not realized. It is a land of hope and that can sometimes mean being a land of disappointment because ultimately it's your enterprise and maybe conditions beyond your control that steer you in the end towards whatever it is that you're going to achieve. And we're not always good at accepting our defeats, but that's part of life. Still, I think that the hopefulness, hope springs eternal, especially in America, it seems to me. So I think this if we ever lose this aspirational quality, I think, we're another people. We're, we're a changed people. But I don't see it happening. Not yet. That's fascinating. So in a very real sense, you have produced a book to balance off the onslaught of the academic left and their incorrect interpretation of how the United States came to be the most open society in history. Would that be a fair summary? It is. Let me say this, though. There are, in some ways, it's like Mark Twain's statement about Wagner's music, that it's better than it sounds. There are a lot of academics who are better than one thinks. And that revealed itself, I think, with the 1619 Project controversy. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. That was the New York Times. That was a journalistic enterprise. That's probably giving them too much credit, but we'll call them a journalistic enterprise. And they were attacked by historians, by most of whom, all of whom, I think, are on the left to one degree or another, for inaccuracies, for making the claim that the Revolutionary War was fought principally to defend the institution of slavery. Completely false. There's no evidence for that. And the Times has 
not yet really backed away from it. They altered some things on their website without saying that they were doing so, but they have not really budged on this. And here's the interesting thing. The historical profession has not risen up to defend the 1619 Project. A lot of people are just keeping quiet because their political propensities are with the left, but they know that as a piece of historical writing, what the Times produced is shoddy and unworthy of respect as history. So they just are keeping quiet about it. There's a handful, and some of them are Sean Willans of Princeton, I think is the leading figure, although Gordon Wood has been involved and James McPherson and some others. And he's about as left as you can get. He was the guy who organized the petition to impeach Trump among the historians. At the same time, he was doing this other stuff. He's not motivated by ideology. He's motivated by a sense that you just don't go around presenting as history things that are false, even if it furthers a cause that you may believe in. I want to encourage your listeners not to completely give up on academic historians. That A lot of times when they're with, working within their field and they're bound by canons of argumentation and evidence, they're more responsible than when they start going cracker dog and kind of just wandering around thinking that they can be sort of freelance intellectuals. That's when the trouble really starts. You are a member of the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, which is planning events for our 250th anniversary of the signing of the Dead Bushman Prince. How does that commission work, and do you think that it's a useful step towards taking seriously how America evolved? I am a member, and I think the commission is very fractured so far. We've already been meeting for a couple of years, and I think we're still sort of organizing the deck chairs, so to speak. But I think in due course, it's difficult in this environment, this political environment, to work our way towards the things that we agree about. And I think that's going to continue to be a problem, but it's not an insoluble problem. Interestingly, the commission is a mixture of public officials and private citizens and so-called stakeholders, people in various organizations that have one interest or another in this celebration. In some ways, the politicians have been the most useful <laughs> in kind of moving things forward. Americans love to hate politicians with some reason, but it's really been interesting to watch how some of the politicians, who, when they can attend meetings, and they can't always attend, they just have so many claims on their time, but how well they manage the process of working towards some kind of workable middle ground, whereas all the rest of us were appointed. I was appointed by Paul Ryan when he was Speaker, and Nancy Pelosi had a raft of appointees, and Harry Reid, and then McConnell. So I think there are 16 of us that came through that process, and then a group of public officials, and a lot of ex-officio members who never attend, Secretary of State, you know, that sort of thing. But I'm hopeful about it. I'm really glad we're doing it. We're making the effort. It isn't easy. I think the spirit of the thing, if it's going to be successful, is going to have to, in some way, emulate the spirit I tried to capture with Land of Hope. 
a sort of sense that we are all part of a very, very great story, one of the greatest stories of human history. And you may feel a little bit disaffected about it at this point in time, but it's a big story spanning many, many years. And in some ways, the full significance of it can only be understood if you see it as a uniquely significant event in the history of humankind. And so I think we're working our way towards that. But, you know, one of the things about history and something about Land of Hope is it doesn't go all the way up to the present. I really leave off the detailed account. And it's not super detailed book. It's, I meant it to be something that would be attractive to young readers and very readable. But it really leaves off the detailed account with the end of the Cold War. And then I have more sketchy, impressionistic accounts of events, and mostly looking at the ways in which we are struggling to reconceive our role in the world in the wake of the Cold War. And it's not the only way I could have organized that material, but I think it works pretty well particularly given the fact that history courses almost never make it through the book to the present. So yeah. why not acknowledge that fact? Well, listen, I want to thank you. I think both as a historian and as somebody who really cares about the better understanding of America as a patriotic adventure, that I think you have made a major contribution. I hope it's very, very widely adopted. I think it's a great concept. And I would look forward in the future when you have additional projects to having you back on to talk some more about the nature of America and the nature of American history. I congratulate you. That's a big, audacious undertaking, and I'm very impressed with the way you've done it. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. As someone who has done some audacious things in his own life, I think that is a very high compliment, and we'll just all keep going. Thank you, and it's a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, and I hope you keep it up. Thank you to my guest, Bill McClay. You can read excerpts of his new book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Stone. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.